would turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to notice a verse here to start our lesson this morning, though we'll be spending a lot of our time in the book of Genesis. But like last week, we talked about some lessons that we can learn about God through the creation. And as we studied that lesson, I made the point that that we read that story and children learn about that story from the from very young age. But it's not just a children's story. It's an account that's there for all of us to learn from, that all of those lessons that we talked about last week about God are just as important for us no matter what age we are, as we get to be adults, as we grow older, just as important as when a young child is first learning that story about how God created the heavens and the earth. Well, immediately after that in our Bibles, we come to the account in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll get to in just a minute, of Satan and what he did in tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. And again, that's a story in there, an account in there that is kids learn from an early age, but just like what we talked about last week, it's not just a children's story. It's there for us. It's there for us to learn from. Because as we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, Paul explained to the brethren here at Corinth that the threat that was there for Eve and Adam in the garden is just as real for us today. He said in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Just as she was tempted to sin, Paul says that the same thing can happen to us. And especially if we forget the lessons that we're going to talk about here today, about what we learn about Satan from that account there in the Garden of Eden, we can, because of his craftiness and his deception, we can be led astray if we ignore these lessons. So I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and for our lesson this morning, talk about some of these things that we learn about Satan from this account in the Garden of Eden. And see what we can take from that so we can be better prepared to defend against the temptations that he's going to put in front of us so that we will not be led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ, as Paul talked about there in 2 Corinthians. But what does Satan do here? We're familiar with this account where you have the one tree in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat from this tree. They could freely eat from any tree in the garden. But from this one tree, God told them, you shall not eat because if you eat from this tree in that day, you will die. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, and Satan is going to come in here in the form of the serpent. And he is going to try to get them to violate God's instructions, well, how does he do that? God's instructions are very clear. And when we think about today, God's, what he has told us to do, we can read in the scriptures what he wants us to do, but so often we or those around us, we we see that we don't always do what we ought to do. That was the case with Eve here. What did Satan do? Well, the first thing we see that he did is that he questions God's word. 
questions what God has said. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall eat, not eat from any tree of the garden. Has God said this? We read about that in, in chapter 2, but Satan is coming here and now he's going to question it. Is that really what he said? Is God really the one who, who said this? And what he does is that he uses our lack of knowledge or our misunderstanding about what God has said against us. Because if we don't know what God said, then we're not going to be prepared for his temptations. Or if we misunderstand what God said, then we're going to be easily led astray. And what's interesting here. He says, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from the tree from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent in verse 2, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So she repeated what God said, but if you notice back in chapter 2, what God actually said, she didn't quote this exactly. She wasn't exactly right in what she said. She, was, she got the general idea correct. But notice what she said there again in verse 2. From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Well, what did God actually say in chapter 2 and verse 16? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Notice what Eve added in there. You shall not touch it. God didn't say not to touch it. He said you shall not eat from this tree. Now, when we look at what she said, it's actually stricter than what God said. Now, is that going to cause her to sin, her, her being more careful or extra careful or Possibly Adam explaining this to her and saying that we are not to touch this. That being extra careful does not necessarily mean we're going to go into sin. But there is a difference between what that idea was and what God said. We have to be able to understand that difference. When we cannot understand the difference between what our ideas are that we want to be more careful... And what God has actually said, when we can't distinguish between those, it's very easy to blur the lines between man's ideas and God's ideas, and then this temptation comes in. Satan uses that against us, because then this is more strict than God had made it. So now he's going to use that. He's going to use that to make it to where God is simply trying to withhold something from you. That God is simply wanting to deprive you of something. And so he uses that against her, as we're going to see here in, in, this, in this account. But what Satan is doing here, he's questioning what God says. We know in Psalm 119, verse 89, that God's word is forever settled or forever fixed in heaven. Well, Satan wants to portray God's word as being unsettled or or being flexible. Say, well, God said this, but really you can do this. Really you can do something different. And he 
answered what Eve said, where again, she added something else in addition to what God's actual instructions were. He latched onto that and he portrayed what God said as negatively as possible because he focused on the restrictions that were given rather than the liberties. Again, what God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but there's one tree, don't eat of that. Satan focused on that restriction and then made it sound worse than it was. Well, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, obviously that's not what God said. God said, you may freely eat of any tree, but one tree you may not eat. He is focusing on this, the the restriction and emphasizing that, making it sound like it's bigger than it is. And here you have Eve now, as she understands the spirit behind what God's instructions were. But even she is not perfectly remembering or explaining what God had said. So Satan comes and what he does first, he questions the word of God. The next thing he does is that he minimizes the consequences of sin. Where God said that if you eat of this one tree, it says you will surely die. Well, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. This was obviously just a lie on his part. But he does this, he makes this bold claim because he's trying to minimize what the consequence is of sin. God says, here's this one tree of the garden. You may not eat of this tree. If you do, this is what the punishment is. This is what the consequence is. Well, Satan's trying to remove that. Because once you remove the consequence of sin, then what reason is there to avoid that? Well, I think, well, we still should avoid it because we want to honor God, and that may be true. But in reality, for all practical purposes, when you take away the consequences of sin, when there is no punishment for sin, or we don't believe that there's a punishment for sin, then it's very easy to set aside the commandment of God and just do whatever we want to do. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul was talking about the resurrection and the idea that some people had that there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, no hope of eternal life when this life is over, that also means there's no chance of punishment after this life is over because this life is all there is. Well, if that's the case, then why should we bother following what God has told us to do? If there's no punishment for sin, why not just live as we please? Or if there was not death there in the garden that was a consequence of eating this tree, why not just eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 32, Paul said, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, and again, there's no reward, there's no punishment, none of that happens. If the dead are not raised, he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just do what we want to do. Live as we please. And Eve, eat of that tree in the garden that God said not to eat because if there's no punishment for sin, then go ahead and enjoy it. If you want to, go ahead and do it. And that's what our world tells us to do. Whatever 
you want to do, whatever is desirable, whatever feels right, whatever seems good, go ahead and do it. Because our world says, well, this is all that there is. And so you may as well just enjoy this life for all that it is. For all that you can get out of it, whatever seems good to you, just enjoy that because this is all we get. Once the consequences of sin are ignored or taken out of the way, then you don't have that motivation to avoid sin. But this consequence here, the serpent said to the woman in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, you surely will not die. Well, they tried that. They tried eating of the fruit. And what really happened is that there were consequences for this. There was punishment. He said in verse 16, when God addressed first Satan in verses 14 and 15 for what he did in tempting Eve to sin, but then he said to Eve in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then to Adam in verse 17, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There were consequences for this. The devil said, no, there's, there's no consequences. You can eat of this tree, any tree that you want, even the one that God said not to. You can eat of that tree because there are no consequences. Well, they found out very quickly that there were consequences for sin. Every decision that we make, and whenever we sin, we are making the choice to sin. But every decision that we make, good or bad or indifferent, or in our mind we think it's indifferent, but every decision we make, there's a cost to that. That there is something that we are giving up. There is something that we are we are putting ourselves in a position that we are going to deal with the with the fallout or the consequences of the choice that we make. Our decisions that we make affect what our life is going to be like moving forward. And for some of these things, when it comes to sin, it affects our standing before God and the hope that we have or that we want to obtain when this life is over. It affects that. Jesus said in Luke 14 and verse 28 that we are to count the cost or calculate the cost to determine whether what we decide to do, and we need to be mindful of that, not just go throughout our lives thinking that, well, we can just do whatever and not put much thought into it. No, the decisions that we make matter. And we need to make sure that we are counting the cost if what we are doing now is helpful, is good, and is right. Is it leading us in the right direction? Is it taking us closer to where God wants us to be? Or are we ignoring those things and just living as we please as the serpent tried to convince Eve and certainly did in this moment that there are no consequences for sin. Are we following that direction? We need to count the cost, recognizing that there are consequences to sin. 
But what Satan does in on the other hand, he says he tries to minimize the consequences of sin on one hand, but on the other hand, he tries to highlight the so-called benefits of sin. Now, on the screen I have that in quotes because when we think about the benefits of sin, that's how he's trying to sell it to us. He's trying to portray it as something that is good because notice what he says. After he told Eve that you will surely not die, in verse 4, he said in verse 5, For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at what can happen. Look at the good that can come from this. If you just eat from this tree, look at what you can gain. You will be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You will know good and evil. You are. You will be tempted, just as Eve was. All of us are tempted by what we hope to gain in this life. Over in 1 John chapter 2, John warned us about following after the things of this world because this is what Satan did with Eve in the garden. This is what he does with us today. <clears throat> in 1 John 2 verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Those temptations, are, look at what you can gain. Something that is desirable to you. Something that looks good to you. The boastful pride of life. How you are viewed by other people. Where they look up to you. Or they are envious of you. Or they respect you. Or whatever it might be. These are the things that we're hoping to gain from by giving into temptation. John said this is not from the Father, but it's from the world. But he says in verse 17, The world is passing away and also its lusts, but one who does the will of God lives forever. Whatever benefit, so-called, there may be for sin. Whatever we might be thinking, say, well, if I do this, then this will happen that I want. Or I'll gain this. Or people will look at me this way and I kind of would like people to view me in that way. Whatever it might be, whatever we hope to gain by sin, it's only temporary. The world is passing away and also its lust. But those benefits that Satan is trying to sell you on, say, well, if you sin, this is what you get. This is what will happen. He told Eve, you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. Your eyes will be opened. And so by focusing on the what he describes as these benefits, what you gain from sin. He's portraying God and criticizing God as one who's trying to withhold these benefits from you. Like, how could God be good if here's the good things that come from this and He's not wanting you to have it? Why would, why would you think that God is good? Why, is he, why do you think He's looking out for your best interest when He's just trying to keep you from these things? That's what Satan wants us to think. Satan wants us to think that God is simply out of meanness or because he just wants to boss us around and be a tyrant that he's just wanting to withhold good things from us. But that's not what God's doing. But that's what Satan is trying to convince us that he is doing. He said there in verse 5, God knows that this will happen. God knows that these are the benefits, but he doesn't want you to have them. 
That's what Satan is trying to do. But one of the other things we see about Satan in this account is that Satan will never be victorious over God. You have here Satan trying to tempt Eve to sin, and she did sin. And she gave to Adam, and he ate, so he sinned as well. So he ruined this home, this perfect home in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, sent Adam, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve at the beginning, they were in this perfect home in the Garden of Eden, a place where they had access to the tree of life, a place where they were in the direct presence of God. Satan ruined this. And so it might appear that he had won a victory, and certainly he won a battle here, but he was not going to be victorious in the end. We read already the punishment for Adam and Eve both in verses 16 through 19. But first God addressed the serpent. He said in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You are going to provide pain and and hardship for this seed of the woman. You will bruise him on the heel. But in doing that, he is going to destroy you. He is going to end your rule over death, end your rule over being able to keep mankind trapped in sin. Over in Hebrews chapter 2, as we look at this as a prophecy, because this looks forward to Jesus and what He would do, that He would destroy the power of Satan. Well, that's what the book of Hebrews talks about. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. In talking about Jesus, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Jesus was going to destroy Satan's power over death. And what's interesting here is that this victory that Satan seemed to win here in the Garden of Eden, God is turning that against him. God is using that short-term victory that he gained to bring about his defeat. Because, yes, he he was able to get them to sin, but now you have... God's plan put in motion that Jesus is going to come that he is going to fulfill his mission that he is going to that he is going to destroy the work of Satan and provide salvation for mankind 
I read something interesting not too long ago from a preacher who lived back in the 1800s, a man named Robert Richardson. He's known, best known for his work in writing the memoirs of Alexander Campbell. Most people have heard of Alexander Campbell. But Robert Richardson was one who, he was a preacher and he wrote you know, historical accounts and, and that biography of Campbell. But one of the things that, that he wrote that I was reading recently were different meditations or devotions that are focused on worship. And he was commenting on this account here and Satan and the serpent and what he did in the garden. And the comment that he made, which I thought was very interesting, is that the serpent, Satan, actually became here on this occasion, unwittingly, the first preacher of life and glory. <clears throat> which is how he worded it, that Satan was the first preacher of life and glory. You might wonder, well, how in the world would he say that? Obviously, that wasn't his intention. He wasn't proclaiming life and glory. But when he said there in verse 5, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When he said in verse 4, you will not surely die. Because God was going to put this plan in place. And the plan that was already in his mind before the world was formed we would not have to die. That God was going to provide us with eternal life where we would overcome death. That we would be like God in the sense that we would be children of God. We would partake in His glory and, and His image and that we would be like God knowing good and evil. Not in the sense where Adam and Eve had known only good and lost that. Now they are introduced to evil. But we today grow up in a world where there's evil all around us. And we're going to see that taken away. We experience that now. And then we're going to see only good in eternity. Obviously, that wasn't Satan's intention. But we see the power of God in this. Going back to what we talked about last week, with the power of God, we see that even in here, that even in Satan's victory here, God is able to turn that directly around against him and cause good to come from that for all of us. So what does all of this mean for us? As we understand these things about Satan and what we see about him in the garden, if Satan questions God's word, we see that that's what he does and this is what he continues to do. If Satan is going to question God's word, we need to make sure that God's word is written on our hearts. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, It's your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Satan is going to question the word of God and try to, again, latch on to any misunderstanding that we have or any lack of knowledge that we have. The way we guard against that is by reading the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures, making sure we understand what the Word of God teaches. Because this is where he's going to start. He's going to question the Word of God. We have to know the Word of God. We have to have it treasured in our heart. If Satan is going to minimize the consequences of sin, then we need to make sure that we remind ourselves 
what the real consequences of sin are. He's going to want us to ignore those things and say that, well, though that really is not that much of a problem. The wise man said in Proverbs 13 and verse 15 that the way of the transgressor is hard. That life is difficult when we give ourselves over to sin. Satan doesn't want us to think about that. He wants us to think about all that we can gain from this. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But he tries to get us to ignore the negative consequences of sin. Well, in this life, there are all sorts of hardships that come when we sin. And we've experienced, all of us have experienced those from times where we have not done what we ought to do. And we have to suffer certain consequences in this life. We can see others who have ruined their lives because of sin. They might be in jail. They may have lost everything that we have. they have. They may have lost their families. We see the, the consequences and the difficulties that come from sin. But more than that, Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, even beyond this life. And the difficulties that come by pursuing sin, there, are, there is a punishment beyond this life that we don't want to experience. So as Satan wants to get us to ignore the consequences of sin, we need to remember what they are. And as he tries to highlight the benefits or the so-called benefits of sin, we need to remember that they, these benefits, whatever they might be, they are only temporary. We remember Moses who is told to us in Hebrews chapter 11, in his example, what he was willing to do. In verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. There may have been some pleasure, some so-called benefits by continuing in a world and a lifestyle of sin. But whatever benefit, whatever pleasure there was, it was only temporary. It was passing. So when we are tempted to sin by, well, this is what you're going to gain, and this is what you're going to receive, and this is how people are going to look at you, even if we get that, it doesn't last. It's only temporary. And if Satan will never be victorious over God, or probably should have worded that, since Satan will never be victorious over God, then we need to make sure that we are staying on the Lord's side. Over in Revelation chapter 20, we read about the the eternal fate of those who follow God and those who do not. And in that we read about the punishment that Satan is going to have to endure at the end. And Revelation 20 and verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is his fate. And Satan is not going to be victorious over God. This is, this is what's coming for him, and there's no way that he has to stop that or to avoid that. And then in verse 11, talks about the judgment scene. And how the all the everyone, the dead and, and those who are small and great, 
they are all gathered before the Lord in judgment. The books are opened and the book of life is open, judged according to those who are according to those things that are written in the books, according to our deeds. It says in verse 14, the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The same fate as the devil is going to have to endure in verse 10 for those who are not written in the book of life. In chapter 21 and verse 27, it says, Nothing unclean, after describing this holy city that we have symbolically pictured to us as the reward that God is giving to us, it says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose names are in the book of life, they will be rewarded with heaven. Those whose names are not found written in the book, they will be punished in that lake of fire that's described in Revelation chapter 20. Over in chapter 22 and verse 14, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, or some, some versions have who do his commandments, which those are talking about the same thing. The blessed are those who wash their robes or do His commandments so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Those who wash their robes, those who keep His commandments, they are the ones who have their names written in the book of life. They will enter the gates of the city. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, which means if they don't follow them, if they don't obey them, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. We need to make sure that we are on the Lord's side, that we are doing his commandments, that we, we, that we have our name written in the book of life. Because if our name is not written there, then we don't have hope. Or if our name was written there and we've departed from God and, and gone back into sin and our name can be blotted out, then we don't have hope in that case either. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 44 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And he is the father of lies. He is wanting to deceive us. He's wanting to destroy us. He does not want to, despite all these claims of, well, look how much better your life will be. Look all the good things that you'll have if you do this. As he told Eve, look at all the benefits that come from eating of this tree. He does not want what is good for us. He does not want to help us. But he tries to deceive us into thinking that he does. We need to make sure that we are holding on to God's word. That we recognize the true consequences of sin. And that whatever the devil is trying to sell us on, it's only temporary. We need to make to remain faithful to God no matter what offer, no matter what temptation He throws at us. So as we close the lesson and extend the invitation, we want to invite anyone who needs to have their name written in the book of life to allow God to add your name to that. If you are not a Christian, you can become a Christian and He will add your name to that, just as He adds you to the church. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith, you could be baptized into Christ to have your sins washed away. And if you have 
done that, but then have done things and lived in a way that could take your name out of the book of life, then you need to repent of that and pray to God and ask Him for forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.